Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Nigdy w życiu nie byłem tak szczęśliwy z tego niby drugiego miejsca. Odsunęliśmy ich od władzy. Never in my life have I been so happy about taking second place. They're the words of Donald Tusk, former prime minister and Polish opposition leader, speaking on Sunday night after early exit polls showed the opposition parties in Poland in pole position to form a government. Tusk's group technically finished second behind the ruling Law and Justice Party, but together with two other opposition groups, they have enough seats to form a new government. It represents a seismic shift in the politics of one of Europe's biggest countries. I'm Suzanne Lynch, host of EU Confidential. In this episode, we'll analyse the results of the Polish elections with our political colleagues, and hear from journalist, commentator and historian Anne Applebaum about the significance of the winds of political change in Poland, as well as her views on the situation in the Middle East and Ukraine. There was an echo of the past. I mean, it was a Polish election in 1989 that kicked off a series of events that led to the peaceful fall of communism. So once again, maybe Poland is at the head of a trend against these autocratic parties, against these you know nationalist populists. Maybe it can inspire others to do the same. But first, let's welcome our political colleagues Jan Czenski, who's been covering the election for us in Warsaw, and Nick Vinokur, our editor-at-large, to discuss some of the events of the week, including Monday's attack in Brussels. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Nick, let's start with Brussels this week. On Monday evening, there was an awful attack where two people, two Swedish nationals, were killed. And the city in Brussels went into lockdown. Tell us more about what happened. Well, it was a real flashback to the terrible days of 2015, 2016, when we had a big bomb attack just down the road. I was at a dinner out with people and very quickly the restaurant and the city emptied out and people scurried home to safety. And it took the authorities many, many hours to to capture and, and ultimately to kill this uh, the suspect. I think it just points to the, the climate of tension in Brussels and across Europe that is growing linked to the the Israel-Hamas war. I mean, as you say, on Tuesday morning, this suspect uh, was caught by police and shot and died. Um, He's a Tunisian national that had been living in Belgium. But as you say there, tapping into a broader 
tension uh, really about what's happening in the Middle East. We've saw this week, for example, then the Italian Prime Minister, George Maloney, she announced that she was going to reinstate border controls with Slovenia, citing risks of attack. So let's see if this issue becomes more of a talking point among leaders, for example, when they meet uh, next week for their summit. And actually this week there was already an emergency summit that was called on Tuesday to deal with the EU's response to the crisis in the Middle East. Yeah, indeed, there was a great need to align positions. Uh, We had a whole sequence of of gaffes uh, last week, starting with this announcement that was then rescinded about suspending aid for the Palestinians, continuing with von der Leyen's trip to Israel, uh, which was heavily criticized by diplomats. And then after leading into this week, there was this extraordinary summit to align positions and try to harmonize. But as we can see, there continues to be big divergences between Joseph Burrell, the EU's top diplomat, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the commission, and Charles Michel, the the president of the EU council. They've all got slightly different views and and language on on the Israel-Hamas war, and it it contributes to a sense of disorder and chaos in in how the EU is, is acting here. Yeah, definitely not aligned there, Nick, as you explained there. Von der Leyen was criticised for uh, that visit to Israel where she didn't publicly call out the need for Israel to show restraint in its response in Gaza, whereas Yosef Burrell in particular has been from the beginning mentioning the plight of the Palestinians a lot more. So a very different perspective there between some of the key players. Jan, the other story this week was the Polish elections. Now, you were on with us last week on the podcast setting this up. Wow, what a dramatic evening it was on Sunday evening when those results came in. Fill us in on how the elections went down and the results of those. So the elections actually were had the largest turnout in Polish democratic history. Just over 74% of polls took part, uh, which is huge. And the winning party was Law and Justice, which has ruled the country for the last eight years. They got uh, just over 35% of the vote. but they So they were the biggest party, but they've actually lost the election because three broadly democratic parties, a civic coalition, which is run by Donald Tusk, a former prime minister and former European Council president, came second. And then there was an outfit called Third Way, which came third, and the left, uh, which came fourth. And those three parties together have pledged to form a joint government. And the Polish parliament has 460 seats, so you need 231 to form a government. And together, these three parties have 248 seats. So they've got enough to form a new government. So that means a big change of direction in Poland. Mm, And the Conservative uh, Law and Justice Party also suffered a defeat in the Senate too. So look, I mean, what happens next in terms of forming this government? And what was the mood like in Poland? I mean, pretty seismic shift politically. Donald Tusk, now the former European Council President and the former Polish Prime Minister, is back. Yeah, obviously it depends which side of the political spectrum you're on. Poland is incredibly deeply divided politically. So Law and Justice supporters feel this is a catastrophe. They've been fed a line that... Tusk is more loyal to Berlin than to Warsaw, that he's going to raise the retirement age, take away all sorts of social benefits. So there is certainly a sense among sort of the older rural electorate, uh, which is the the bedrock of law and justice's support, of consternation and worry of what's going to happen uh, under a Tusk government. The mood in the larger cities among the more liberal electorate is one of elation, that they were distressed with the direction that Poland had been on for the last eight years, the constant fights with the 
European Union over rule of law, the politicization of the courts, the media, and many other institutions, and a sense that Poland is now going to travel back into a more standard direction for a European country and will break with the sort of illiberal democracy direction. On that, Nick, I mean, what do you think about its implications for Europe here? I mean, I think everybody in Brussels was tuned into the results on Sunday night as they came in, those first exit polls. It's a big development politically. How do you think this is going to impact things in Brussels? I think you're quite right to say it was unexpected. I certainly didn't expect it. And it's sort of been taken as this incredible relief, essentially, uh, among uh, pro-Europeans. I think there's a couple of impacts. One is that it will isolate Viktor Orban, who's really now the sort of big anti-EU force, the big kind of rebel inside the building. It's going to make things more difficult with him not to team up with the Polish prime minister and in sort of provoking and, and fighting with Brussels. There is, of course, Robert Fico in Slovakia, but that's a much smaller country and, and with much less leverage against the EU. I think it also diminishes this idea that there's going to be some kind of far-right takeover of or hard-right takeover of EU institutions. A lot of talk about a join-up of the EPP, the European Conservative parties, with the ECR, which was law and justice belonged to and was harder right, that they were going to coalesce and make a kind of a power grab in parliament and with big EU positions. I think that risk is really receding now. And you might have Georgia Maloney, the Italian prime minister, also a member of ECR. She may move into the EPP's orbit but it will be, the EPP will remain in charge. And I think more generally, it means that Poland is going to allow, it's going to stop obstructing things like the migration, aid for Ukraine, all sorts of other files where where they had been obstructive. We'll see progress and, and things moving forward. Jan, where did it all go wrong for law and justice losing this election? There was a massive turnout of the youth vote, for example. Do you think that played a factor? I think their big mistake was that they built their campaign almost entirely around attacking Tusk. Tusk was this evil incarnate figure, devilish mix of Russia and Germany who was going to destroy Polish independence. They just kept banging on about this terrible guy lurking in the background who was going to who was going to destroy the country. And uh, Tusk doesn't come across like that. He had a few uh, public appearances on, on Polish state television. He managed to pull together huge rallies in Poland's larger cities. And um, they sort of misplayed that by they didn't really, the law and justice didn't really put together much of a forward-looking program. It was all sort of scary stuff about Tusk, while the uh, the opposition, in contrast to previous years where they had really played up, you know, the danger of law and justice, they tried this time relatively successfully to present more of a forward-looking program, Poland, as Nick was saying, Poland coming back into the family of EU countries, which resonated well with uh, with younger voters. So, Jan, talk us through what happens next. It's going to take some time to form a government, is that right? The power player at the moment is President Andrzej Duda. Uh, He's a law and justice, former law and justice party member and a loyalist of that party. He gets to choose who will be nominated as prime minister. Indications are that he will choose law and justice, even though law and justice doesn't have a hope of creating a, a coalition, but they are the largest party in parliament. If he does that, we will go through a whole series of procedures of of this new government trying to win a majority in parliament. That takes close to two months. So if that happens, then we would see an opposition-led government, probably led by Donald Tusk, taking power sometime in mid to late December. Jan, Nick, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. 
Stay with us for our conversation with journalist and historian Anne Applebaum, who's been reporting on the rise of authoritarian regimes around the world and the dangers they pose to democracy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Poland shows that autocracy is not inevitable. That's the title of Anne Applebaum's latest article in The Atlantic magazine, in which she discusses last weekend's election in Poland. Anne Applebaum, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. First, you yourself voted in in this election, I see, uh, last Sunday. Tell us a bit about that uh, experience, what the atmosphere was like. So yes, I'm a dual citizen of Poland. I've lived here on and off for 30 years. I am married to a Polish politician. He's a member of the European Parliament. He was previously the Polish foreign minister, Radek Skorski. So that's why I was voting. <laughs> we vote in the countryside. Essentially, what the, what the government had done was create lots and lots of new polling places in rural districts. So there were many, many places to vote. We did not wait in line. And of course, that was exactly the opposite experience of what people had in the cities. We have a good friend of ours waited in line at a polling station in Orsunov, which is a kind of neighborhood of Warsaw. He waited for three hours. Um, People finished voting there at three o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning. The turnout in that particular polling station was 91%. Wow. Uh, there was an enormous just people pouring into vote in cities and there was not enough space to vote. And there were people who stood in lines. So, in fact, my, I suppose my experience was typical of people who voted in the countryside, which is that everything was made as easy as possible. This is, of course, because until now, ruling parties, you know, base of support is country rural voters. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the trends here. And as you say, that high turnout was extraordinary. Now, you've written so much about Poland, about the politics of Poland. How significant is this election results that we saw last Sunday? This is a really important election. It's important for Poland because this election marked a kind of turning point. Had the ruling party won another majority, had the Law and Justice Party won another majority, they would have completed the process of shutting down Polish institutions and capturing the state. And they said that's what they were going to do. So the the party leader said, talked about, you know, ending this, you know, the media that he doesn't like. He talked about finishing his so-called judicial reform, which would have meant finishing the capture of the judges. And that, that issue really became the center of the campaign. You know, are you in favor of letting law and justice finish capturing the state? Or, you know, would you like Poland to remain a liberal democracy? And that really made it feel like an existential question to people in an existential election. 
And that's why so many people voted. People felt that their, the nature of the country was on the ballot in, in, a, in a certain way. You know, what kind of country are we going to be? Um, and that makes an important election for Poland. I think it also makes it an important election um, in Europe and in the democratic world where, you know, we've seen a number of countries essentially go from being electoral democracies to being de facto autocracies, maybe competitive autocracies. I mean, people make up these different words, you know, illiberal democracy, competitive autocracy, describe these in-between systems. And you can see it in Hungary, you can see it in Turkey, you can see the left-wing version in Venezuela. And there was a lot of fear that Poland would be the next in line um, and that the Polish election would also end with Poland really stuck with one ruling party that it's no longer possible to get rid of. Uh, and the fact that it didn't happen, um, I think, is a great example for others and for other center, center-left, center-right parties that are fighting um, far-right or far-left autocratic or would-be autocratic parties. It's a, you know, there are a lot of things to learn from this election. And seeing a Polish electorate vote for democracy was, you know, there was an echo of the past. I mean, it was it was a Polish election in 1989 that's, that kicked off you know, a series of events and demonstrations and elections that led to the peaceful fall of communism in Europe and then eventually in the Soviet Union a couple of years later. So, you know, once again, maybe Poland is at the, the head of a trend against these autocratic parties, against these, you know, nationalist populists. Maybe it can inspire others to do the same. In terms of what happens now, new government will be formed, but you recently wrote in a piece for The Atlantic that the Law and Justice Party, as you explained just there, had captured the Polish state, a kind of a system of patronage had, had taken root. Will this new government, how are they going to be able to change that? So it is a big project. You might even call it draining the swamp. Probably the hardest legally part of it will be unpicking the changes in the judiciary, getting rid of the illegally appointed judges. But there's an equally big problem with state administration, which has been politicized, you know, to get any job basically almost anywhere in Poland, you know, or the forestry service or the tax office, you know, you had to be somebody's cousin or somebody's wife, you know, the party sought to take whatever jobs that it could. And so replacing people, you know, bringing back meritocratic tests, you know, bringing back civil service exams, you know, those the, the, the kinds of things that create a a neutral civil service will be part of what has to happen, some kind of civil service reform. There's a big problem with state television, which was turned into a, a kind of propaganda tube that I, th I think is hard for other Europeans to understand. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, that it was biased. It was used to run smear campaigns. It was used kind of in tandem with the prosecution office. They would, you know, attack people. They would investigate them. They would announce the investigation on TV and, you know, make a, you know, series of programs. And, you know, it was really, it became a, a tool of the ruling party in a really vicious and, a, and aggressive way. And reforming that, you know, changing the journalists, bringing it back under some kind of civic control, some kind, you know, is is a big project. I mean, there's a whole list of things like that that, that are going to have to be done. Some of them might be fairly straightforward. I mean, I, you know, I don't know the laws on state companies. It may be fairly easy to replace the heads of, you know, CEOs of state companies who were also somebody's cousin, you know, or somebody's sister. Maybe that's going to be fairly easy, but some pieces of it will be hard. And of course, there will be resistance. And Peace still controls, the Law and Justice Party still controls the presidency. The president apparently thinks of himself as a future leader of that party. So he's going to do what he can to help them while he's still there. They have bases in the security services, which they've already shown they're willing to use in a political way. You know, there, there may be a whole series of traps that, that are set for Tusk and for, the, and for the new government, you know, even before it's created, assuming that it's created in a timely way, which may also not happen.
Yeah, I mean, do you think that the Law and Justice Project are going to accept this? This is what we, I was in America myself reporting during the, the last election. You know, the refusal to accept election results, this transition of power. We're not at that point at all in, in Poland, it seems. Well, they seem to have accepted the election result. The line on on their kind of propaganda channels is we won because they won 35%. So technically they're the largest party in the parliament because the opposition is three parties. And so they're saying we won and now we're, you know, now we're going to form the next government. You know, they're going to hang on for a while while they pretend to form a new government, even though they have no potential coalition partner. And there could be some, you know, maybe they're going to try and buy some MPs or offer them, you know, they've tried, they've done that before. So I'm not exaggerating. They will play a number of games whereby they try and stay in power as long as possible. And maybe the president will help them. Mm. I think the opposition will pretty quickly, they will start saying, we have the majority, we deserve to form the government, polls voted for us. And they will begin to argue from you know, the point of view of popular support that, that we should form the government. But peace will, there could be a number of tricks played before they actually walk out of their offices. You mentioned there about unpicking the judicial changes that were brought in by the previous government are among the most difficult tasks ahead for the new government. But of course, they're also crucial to its relationship with Brussels. It's one of the reasons the European Union withheld funds. Generally, I mean, what does this mean for Poland's relationship with the European Commission? And what does it mean for Europe and Poland's place within Europe? So one of the things that the three opposition parties absolutely have in common is a commitment to Poland being a completely cooperative central member of the European Union to ending the you know, petty fights with Brussels that the last government picked, you know, almost endlessly, restoring Poland's normal relationship with Germany, which is a, Poland's most important trading partner and previously Poland's one of Poland's most important allies, you know, restoring Polish relationships with France, even, you know, that, that had been almost also almost non-existent. And so bringing Poland back into the EU as a as a major player, I think, will be one of their goals. I mean, it will be made difficult by the fact that Poland has created a lot of ill will and people will be, you know, distrustful and waiting to see and so on. You know, I understand that. But I think that will, you know, I know there's a lot going on and everybody has a lot on their plate right now. And there's kind of one crisis after the next. And I'm hoping that at the very least, Poland won't be part of the problem. They'll start to be part of at least some of the solutions. Mm. The threat of some kind of block forming around, you know, Hungary, Slovakia, and Poland as some kind of blocking group inside the EU has just dissipated. You know, that's a really big and important change. There are some issues that this coalition could disagree on, and that's not one of them. Yeah. And of course, this week we saw Viktor Orban, he's in Beijing for a, a forum marking 10 years of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And he also met Vladimir Putin. But but yes, as you say, definitely not good news for Orban as he tries to kind of define himself as part of a, of a wider political movement. But obviously, yes, this does change the calculation very much around the EU table. I mean, another aspect of this, of course, is Poland's relationship with Russia, Poland's relationship with Ukraine. These are countries you have written a lot about your scholar of Russia in particular. And, you know, what does this mean for Ukraine going forward? You know, it's basically good news for Ukraine. The previous government was an important early supporter of Ukraine, of Ukraine's you know military fight against Russia. But it was a somewhat, it was for somewhat transactional reasons. So law and justice as a political party didn't have long and deep links with Ukrainian or with Ukrainian counterparts, which Tusk did. And I, I should say my husband was a was the foreign minister in Tusk's previous government. And in that era, 
he opened up the he created the Eastern Partnership, which was the the trading relationship between the EU and um, Ukraine and, and other East European countries. But there is a long, you know, many links to Ukraine and the civic platform and this coalition's commitment to Ukraine will be one of, you know, we're committed to Ukrainian democracy. We're committed to having Ukraine in the EU. You know, we understand it as part of a bigger geopolitical story. And, you know, we believe in defeating the, not just Putin, but the ideas of Putinism. And they will see it that way and they will understand it that way. And that will make the relationship with Ukraine easier. The current government was very transactional, I mean, they were supporting the war effort because they saw that it was popular in Poland to do so because of the Polish national reaction at the beginning of the war and the you know Polish security being at stake and so on. You know, when a moment came when it looked like Polish farmers were angry because of actually pieces incompetence in failing to transit grain across Poland, so grain prices dropped. Anyway, when there was a moment of quarrel, they immediately leapt onto the offensive and they immediately started, you know, attacking the Ukrainians, you know, including saying something very damaging, which is that Morawiecki, the Polish prime minister, said he won't send weapons to Ukraine. He said that at a very important moment, and it really had a terrible effect on the on the whole coalition. Of course, it's not even true. Poland is still sending weapons to Ukraine. But I think that using Ukraine as a piece of, you know, as a, some kind of Polish political game, you know, I don't think that will the coalition government assuming assuming it's formed and it doesn't look like it's going to be quick i i don't think um i don't think you'll see that moving outwards as, as you mentioned there already there is really is one crisis after another obviously the situation in israel now is dominant here in brussels in washington obviously all around the world what do you think this means for ukraine republicans on capitol hill were already wavering about giving more money to ukraine i mean how has this changed the dynamic geopolitically I mean, as I understand it, the kind of aid that, you know, the U.S. or anyone else might give to Israel is not the same as what they would give to Ukraine. I mean, the Israelis aren't asking for thousands of rounds of ammunition for tanks. It's not that kind of war, and it won't be that kind of war. Um, so I don't see any conflict in terms of, you know, we don't have enough supplies to go around, something like that. I mean, there is obviously a conflict of attention. You know, the attention that was being paid to Ukraine will now shift to the catastrophe in the Middle East. And one way or the other, it's a, it is already a catastrophe and it's not going to get better quickly. You know, honestly, right now, I don't know whether it's good or bad for Ukraine. I mean, having having people less focused on it, but continuing to support the war effort, maybe that's not so terrible. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's early days. It's clear now that Ukraine has slowed its counteroffensive and it's now on the defensive in eastern Ukraine. But that may that seems to be neither here nor there. And the defenses appear to be holding up, you know, but there's so there's been a slight shift in the war. I don't think that is affected one way or the other by by the Middle East. And the other news from Ukraine recently is it looks like they now have these attackums, these very long range U.S. missiles that they were asking for for a long time. And there was a dispute about whether or not they should have them. It seems they were used in the last couple of days. And so the U.S. is actually very quietly helping Ukraine in all kinds of ways still. So, you know, it looks like Americans can walk and chew gum at the same time, as we say in the United States. And maybe we can, Biden can go to the Middle East and there's still some people back home who can, you know, pay attention to what's happening in, you know, Kherson province. I mean, maybe it's not that hard. 
Just some final thoughts then on, on this election result. We've got the prospect here in Brussels of Donald Tusk returning. He was a former head of the European Council. One of the most senior figures, really, of, from Central and Eastern Europe to hold a senior EU job. Maybe give a sense of what this means for Poland's role in the EU. I mean, do you think it's this kind of seismic moment that people are talking about? Yeah, I think for, you know, for Poland to once again be at the center of European politics, to be led by someone who has that kind of status, the status that Tusk has in Europe and in the world, you know, means that Poland is returning to some kind of normal mainstream, you know, Western democratic, you know, politics. And I think it's a it's significant because it's it's a step away from the creation of a of a far right blocking group in Europe. It's an encouragement to liberal you know, center, center right, center left parties elsewhere in Europe, uh, you know, and it's, and I think the lesson of the Polish election with it, the, this huge turnout and this mobilization of younger people is a real inspiration. And I think people will see it that way. And I'm, I'm glad Poland is able to play that role. It's played a very negative role in Europe for the last eight years. And I'm glad that era will now be over. Thank you to Anne Applebaum for that analysis. And that's all we have for you on this episode of EU Confidential. Remember to follow us on your favourite app. And if you do want to get in touch with any ideas for guests or topics, you can always email us at podcast at politico.eu. Thanks to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, and Diana Sturis here in Brussels, our senior audio producer. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.